0: Coming up on Executive Edge.
1: You can slow down your own thinking. You can replace your intuition with intelligence. You can ask yourselves the right questions. You can hold yourselves accountable. The power of reflection is real. Just sort of stopping ourselves and analyzing it and thinking through questioning, you know, ourselves and our actions and our decisions.
0: In today's episode, we'll discuss racial bias, where it comes from, how it influences our interactions and decisions, and how we can begin to combat it in our organizations and communities. Today's guest explains how our brains are wired to see differences and how we can use that awareness to end the sort of discrimination that's subtle, subjective and happening all around us. Our guest uses her research and experiences to demonstrate the value of capitalizing on that possibility. We're talking today with Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, Professor of Psychology at Stanford University and MacArthur Genius Award recipient. She's been elected to the National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and was named one of Foreign Policy's 100 Leading Global Thinkers. Dr. Eberhardt has consulted with numerous public and private sector organizations, including those in the criminal justice system to address racial bias. She is also co-founder and co-director of SPARC, a Stanford initiative to bring together researchers and practitioners to address pressing social problems. Today's interview will focus on her acclaimed book, Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice That Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. Our host for today's episode is Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Lori, take it away.
2: Thank you so much, Jennifer, for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Jennifer, what do you mean when you say that we're all wired for bias?
1: Well, I mean that we create categories to make sense of the world, uh, to assert some kind of, you know, coherence and control, you know, over the stimuli that we're being constantly bombarded with. And so, categorization allows our brains to uh, make judgments more quickly and more efficiently. Once we um, lump those people into categories, we develop beliefs and feelings about those people. So, bias refers to the beliefs and feelings uh, that we. Have have about social groups that can affect our decision-making and our actions, even when we're not aware of it. Is that where stereotypes come from? Yeah, so uh, stereotypes, that refers to the beliefs we have, and prejudice refers to the feelings that we might have about social groups. And so together, these beliefs and feelings, that's what we call bias.
2: How does our wiring, this wiring, lead to negative outcomes created by bias?
1: Once we have those beliefs you know, and, and feelings about people who are in that category, that can come online when we're making judgments about an individual person. So you're now sort of thinking about that person as a member of that group or a member of that category. And so all of the associations that we have with that category can get, get placed onto that person and you start to treat that person as a representation basically of the group. And so if those um, beliefs and feelings are negative or bad, you know, that could lead to great harm, right, Mm -hmm. as you might imagine to that individual person.
2: Sure. So let's talk about racial bias specifically for a moment, and help us understand how fear might play a role in racial bias specifically.
1: First of all, we can kind of just talk about um, how bias gets triggered, and so we're all vulnerable to bias. Uh, So again, we're all sort of wired uh, to some extent for bias, but we're not acting on bias all the time. So bias uh, gets triggered as a function of our context or the situations that we're in, and so there are lots of situational triggers of bias, including our emotional states like fear. There's also like when we're tired, when we're overwhelmed, when we're feeling threatened. So all of those uh, kinds of states can actually uh, trigger bias. It makes bias more likely. It makes bias, um, you know, something that can affect our decision making and our actions.
2: Heightened emotional state is really the important piece there.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, it, it's critical. When we are um, in that kind of heightened state, uh, we rely uh, more on our intuition. We rely more on these sort of well-practiced associations that we've developed across a lifetime. And, and that those associations will leap forward and influence how we're thinking and how we're deciding and how we're acting, basically.
2: So how do you know, then, that bias is playing a role?
1: Well, it's hard to know if bias is playing a role for any individual situation, but we know, again, what the conditions are of bias. And so we know when bias is more or less likely as a general rule. The other thing we can do as scientists is place people into studies, right? Um, you you kind of put them in the exact same situation and you change one variable. You change the uh, one person's race so that they're either black or white. And then you look at how people... You know, respond differently as a function of that one little change.
2: Jennifer, how does bias play out in the criminal justice system?
1: In laboratory studies, for example, we've shown that simply, you know, exposing people to black faces on a computer screen can lead them to see blurry images of guns uh, more quickly. And that's because there's an association there between blackness and crime. And we've also found uh, that bias can. Influence uh, who captures the attention of police officers. So uh, again, in laboratory studies, this time with police officers. So we prompt them to think of violent crime by, you know, uh, th- you know, having them think of shooting and capturing and arresting and so forth. And we found that when we do this, this leads them to focus their eyes on, you know, on black faces and away from white faces. So in, in a sense, it's a it's a way of looking at kind of racial profiling, right? When you're looking for, you know, criminal activity, who is it that you're? focusing on, and we find that they're uh, more likely to focus on a Black people or Black faces in this um, situation. We've also found that the more people are reminded of racial uh, disparities uh, in the criminal justice system, so for example, uh, the more Black they think the prison population is, the more supportive they are of aggressive um, you know, uh, uh, police enforcement tactics, like, like stop and frisk and so forth. You know, so what we're finding is that the racial disparities right, in the criminal justice system can uh, lead people to think that there's something wrong with black people rather than something wrong with the system. And so the disparities in the system can strengthen the association uh, between blackness and crime. And, and, and police officers fall prey to this too when they feel that, you know, black people are, you know, committing more crime than other groups. That can uh, justify, you know, who they stop, who they search, who they handcuff, who they arrest, and so forth. So, from their perspective, they're stopping more black people because those are the people who are committing crime. But then, you know, I say to them that, you know, acknowledging that there's a disparity in who's committing crime, right, shouldn't make you less concerned about bias. It should make you more concerned concerned about bias, right? Because those disparities are again, they're strengthening the association between race and crime. And and as police officers, those disparities can you know lead them to make decisions and to take actions that rely on that association between blackness and crime rather than the individual suspect's behavior. So it can lead them basically to racially profile. So it, and it can lead them to you know rely on those disparities you know rather than to relying on the individual person's uh, you know behavior. And then also bias can play out in the courtroom. I, I think when we're talking about the workplace, you know, a lot of listeners here, the, the workplace is the courtroom, right? To some extent. So we've actually had studies uh, that we've done where we've you know looked at how a bias can play a role in death sentencing decisions. So, for example, in one study, we used a large uh, data set of death eligible defendants, and we found that black defendants with more stereotypically black facial features were more than twice as likely to receive a death sentence than those with less stereotypically black features. And this was the case, even though we controlled for aggravators, uh, mitigators, we controlled for the severity of the crime. We even controlled for the defendant's attractiveness. And we found that no matter what we controlled for, you know, black defendants were punished in proportion to the blackness of their physical features. So the more black, the more deathworthy. Wow. We had a hypothesis that race would matter there, but like it doubled the chances of, uh, you know, receiving a death sentence, looking more black did, you know, that was striking for us, actually.
2: Let's take this into the offices within the judiciary or any other organization. What about the interactions among leaders and staff, for example? How does bias play out in those types of environments?
1: In the workplace, it's the the same kind of uh, things that we've been talking about. Uh, If people are having to make uh, quick or split-second decisions, if you don't have objective standards for evaluating others, you're relying on subjective standards like whether someone fits into the workplace whether they're a team player that's a recipe you know for having your decisions infected by bias when there's a lack of accountability when you're not tracking outcomes you know as a function of race or gender or other you know uh, categories that's a you know an example of where you can have disparities that are being produced uh, to some extent by bias that are going unchecked so for example you don't really understand the, the extent of, of a problem until you start to measure it and so just having a way to, to track disparities is a start. The second thing you want to do, though, is to try to understand what's producing the disparities. So bias could be one of many things producing the disparities. Um, so you want to, once you start tracking, uh, you want to be able to, you know, look at all of the potential uh, producers of the disparity and to try to use various levers to make a move to, to like, adjust that outcome in the direction that you want. So, so to decrease uh, the disparities that you see. But that can get tricky. Right. Um, Because there are a lot again, there are lots of um, different factors that uh, actually influence that disparity
2: as individuals. How can we check ourselves to see if we're acting on bias or perpetuating bias?
1: Let me give you an example here. So um, here in California, I've been working with a number of my uh, colleagues at Stanford, along with uh, members of a police department here, in this case, it's uh, the Oakland Police Department. And we were uh, interested in helping that police department to reduce the number of stops they made of people who were not committing any serious crimes. And we did this by simply adding a question to the form that officers complete as they're making a stop. And that question was, is this stop intelligence led, yes or no? Now, what they mean by intelligence led is, um, did I have prior information to tie this specific person to a particular crime? And so what we were doing here is getting officers to use evidence of criminal wrongdoing in place of intuition, because bias happens when we're using our intuition, when we're not stopping and slowing down and sort of thinking, right? We're just kind of using you know, our intuition about what's happening. And so we wanted to interfere with that. And so at the moment, the officer was deciding whether to pull someone over or not. And so we did that with that question that reoriented them, you know is this stop intelligence led, you know, yes or no? And we found that just adding that question led to, you know, fewer stops. And, and if we look at African-American stops alone, we found that those stops fell by over 43% with the addition of this simple question to the form. So that, um, how did that intervention work, right? It slowed them down because we know that bias happens when people are making these quick split second decisions. We uh, reoriented them to think about criminal wrongdoing rather than intuition. We uh, made them accountable. So we started tracking the the number of stops that they made that were Intel led versus not, right? So we introduced this new metric. Then the um, police department actually incentivized those kinds of stops, right? So they prioritize these intel-led stops over, you know, other kind of of stops like pretextual stops or equipment violations, you know, and so forth, because these were like oftentimes these were traffic stops. So here, you know, I've mentioned a number of different conditions of bias that we intervened on to lead to a different outcome, to fewer stops and and fewer stops of African-Americans in particular who were not involved in any serious uh, criminal wrongdoing. But you could take those same uh, principles as an individual, and use them as well, right? You can slow down your own thinking. You can replace your intuition with intelligence. You can ask yourselves the right questions. You can um, hold yourselves accountable. So, all of the things that I just talked about, you know, as an organization, and in this case, as a police department, they, they were doing, we can do ourselves as individuals.
2: And it sounds like as leaders, we can incentivize the kinds of behaviors that would lead to less bias than more bias.
1: That's exactly right, because as leaders, uh, you're setting the tone, right? As leaders, you're creating the conditions under which other people are working. And we know, once again, you know, that bias is triggered by our, our situational context. And so to the extent that leaders are determining what that context is, they have extraordinary power
2: one of the really interesting things I, I found in your book, and they're among many interesting things is that bias can be contagious. Um, so yes. talk a little bit about bias contagion and, and how that impacts us.
1: So watching someone exhibit bias uh, toward another person can lead you to be biased, you know, toward that person too. And this can happen happen in really subtle ways. For example, uh, researchers have examined popular television shows and they looked at the subtle uh, nonverbal behavior of the actors on the shows. So, so, so this is like smiling and frowning or, or leaning towards uh, someone versus away uh, from someone, grimacing. So all of these little things that you may not even be aware of. And they found that Black actors are responded to in more negative ways than white actors. And they also found that this spills over to viewers, right? So as you're watching these shows, you know, this is, you know, leading you to pick up on the, the racial bias uh, of the actors, and it leads you to become more biased yourself. We're watching how people are treated, and it influences how we see them and how we treat them ourselves.
2: So that leads me to take this to a more personal level. You know, what's the impact, Jennifer, on those who are routinely the targets of racial bias?
1: I mean the impact is great and again it can be felt in almost every area of, of life and at almost any stage uh, you know of life you know for example researchers have found that preschool teachers are already looking for signs of trouble from black students more so than white students and black boys in particular so it starts really early you know I've also found uh, you know I've conducted research with uh, colleagues here at Stanford and we found that teachers uh, respond to minor infractions of um, you know black students more harshly than the identical infractions you know exhibited by white students, and, and how teachers respond can influence you know the academic performance of those uh, children. It can influence their trust in the school. It can influence their identity as as learners. So. Yeah, there's great impact, an impact that affects not just their identity, but, but how they're going to do in life. Because if you're not successful at school, that can have you know, a huge influence on your life outcomes. And I think for Black people in particular, there's research showing that if you're pushed out of school, so if you, you know, for, for high school dropouts, 70% of them end up in the criminal justice system at some point in their lifetime. So we're talking about huge impacts here.
0: Hi, I'm Mark Sherman, host of the FJC podcast, Off Paper. There's a lot of important discussion going on about racial bias right now. You've just been listening to a discussion with one of the preeminent experts in the field, and I wanted to tell you about an opportunity to hear it discussed from both the personal and professional perspectives of three retired Black chief pretrial services and probation officers. Their candid discussion of their experiences on and off the job and suggestions for addressing these continuing disparities is as interesting as it is instructive. And I think you'll get a lot out of it. Look for Off Paper, Episode 17, Listening to Black Officers.
2: You talk in your book about. The personal impact of racial bias on yourself and your family uh, as the mother of black children, and I wonder if you would be willing to share with our audience when you've been the recipient, uh, and also when you've you've been um, you've had your own bias triggered.
1: One story I, I uh, like to tell actually is a, a story about my son who was just five years old at the time and. We were on an airplane together and my son was just really excited about being on this airplane. He was like looking all around, he was so excited. And he sees this man and he says, hey, that guy looks like daddy. And so I look at the man and he doesn't look anything at all like (laughs) my husband, (laughs) like nothing at all, right, like my husband. So that led me to start looking around on the plane and I noticed that this man was the only black man on the plane and I thought okay I'm going to have to have a little talk with my son about how not all black people look alike right <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> so I'm getting ready to have this talk with my son I'm trying to you know, adjust the language so I can get the lecture to be, um, you know, appropriate for a five-year-old. But before I could say anything, my son, he looks up at me. He says, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And I said, what? What did you say? And he says it again. He says, well, I hope that man doesn't rob the plane. And I said, you know daddy wouldn't rob a plane? And he says, yeah, yeah, I know. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he looked at me with this really sad face and he said, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. So we're living with such severe racial stratification that even a five-year-old can tell us what's supposed to happen next. Right. Right. Even with no malice. Right. Even with no hatred in his heart, right? This association between Blackness and crime made its way into the mind of my five-year-old.
2: The son of a biased researcher.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. It's so funny because people will say to me, wow, they're like, well, how did he how did that association make its way into the mind of your child? Children are, are looking at us It's you know, they're looking at how we're responding to other people to pick up on who's bad or who's good, who's dangerous, you know, who's safe and all of this. You know, I have another son who. When he was in first grade, uh, he was asking me if I thought people uh, viewed Black people in a different way from white people. And I said, Well, why would you say that? And he says, I don't know. I just think there's just something going on, that there's something, he said, extra special there, you know, when it comes to viewing Black people. And I said, Well, I asked him to give me a, an example, right? And so, Uh, he thought about it and he says, well, remember when we were in a grocery store the other day and there was a black man who came into the grocery store. Now this is in a mostly white neighborhood. And he says, and I noticed when that man came in that people kind of stayed away from him a little bit. It was almost like he had a giant force field around him. (laughs) So he was saying, and when that man got in line, his line was the shortest line for a long time. And I said, well, why is that? And he says, I don't think people wanted to... um, uh, st- stand near him, uh, is what he said. And I said, Well, what do you think this all means? And he said, I don't know. And so he thought about it and he thought about it. And then he looked up at me and he says, I think it's fear. And I thought, Wow, you know, a first grader, not from watching movies, not from watching cartoons, but a first grader from just watching us, just watching how we move through the world, could tell me. That black people, black men in particular, were to be feared.
2: What's there's so many things that are striking about those stories you shared, Jennifer, and thank you for sharing them. You were doing what you suggest to us to do, which is to when there's an intuition, when there's a feeling, to explore that feeling. Why are you feeling that way? What is what is what's behind that? And so that's I think one of our takeaways as individuals, as leaders is to ask the questions, to um, yes, to not make those assumptions or when we're making an assumption to actually try to dig a little bit deeper.
1: Right. I mean, the power of reflection is real. Just just sort of stopping ourselves and analyzing it and thinking through questioning you know, ourselves and our actions and our decisions, it's just, it's, it's another way of slowing down too. We were talking about slowing down. So, and, and it's just kind of rethinking uh, in a way that we're sort of interrogating ourselves. And that definitely is, is a powerful tool to use against bias. In an organizational context or in a work context, I, I think one of the the uh, big tools you can use again is is um, you know looking at uh, your outcomes, <laughs> right? Uh, looking at what outcomes your your institution is producing. Looking at the racial disparities since we're talking about race uh, that are getting produced, and not just accepting you know those disparities as the kind of the natural order of things, but questioning. You know, you know what why why is it that we have these disparities and to look at it from different angles and to look to see are there you no know, aspects of, of the system that I'm in, in in the in the workplace in the institution that I uh, belong to are, are there things that we're doing are there factors uh, in our system that might be encouraging those disparities or, or helping to magnify those disparities in some way and so and, and then go through sort of all of your different Different procedures and 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 all of uh, your different policies and so forth to think about you know how policies and practices might play a role in producing disparities and is there another way are there other policies you know you can use and so just like people right you know policies can be put in place uh, in in ways where they're supposed to be race neutral and you're thinking as a person you know I'm race neutral but you can act in a way that produces a result that is producing racial disparities, basically. And so is there some other policy you could use? Are there unintended consequences to, you know, the the practice that that you're utilizing and so forth? So I think those kinds of questions are um, really important uh, to start asking. Uh, So it's not about, you know, a, a system being racist or a person uh, being racist. is about looking at the outcomes that you may not want to live with, uh, the outcomes that can harm other people that have a negative impact on, on other people's lives. And does it have to be that way? Is there something we can do differently to produce a different outcome?
2: So what you're describing, in order to really look at these policies and procedures and whatnot, it, we have to have some conversations and we have to have an acknowledgement in the workplace that there may be disparity and conversations about race and honest conversations about race are are tough um how do you yes. recommend that we go about that in a work setting where a, a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about this issue
1: you're exactly right. A lot of people don't feel comfortable because they're not used to having the conversation. So that's one issue, right? I think, you know, oftentimes, you know, we're raised to think about having a colorblind approach to all of this, right? So if you don't see color, you can't be biased. You know, that's the idea. And some of us were raised in that way where it's like you're not supposed to notice color. You're not supposed to comment on color. uh, You're just supposed to pretend that it's not there. But the research shows that uh, when we, you know, when we're pushing ourselves not to see color, we also don't see the discrimination, the harm, you know, that comes uh, from color. And so, uh, so one way that we can address this is to actually <laughs> talk about it, right? To uh, sort of talk about uh, what we're seeing, uh, to talk about bias, to talk about discrimination, to talk about racial uh, diversity, like all of these things that, you know, oftentimes that we're uncomfortable with. And, to, and I think, um, you know, science science can help us there because science can give us the language to have these discussions in more productive ways. We can, through the science, point to findings about how bias could be operating and so forth. We can point to evidence-based strategies you know, for intervening on this. And so it's not like you're having a conversation and it's just uncovering all this negative stuff and it's nothing anybody can do about it. But science teaches us that there is a lot that we can do, right? So, you know, science allows us to you know, kind of use a language that that, that kind of helps us to move from sort of intentional acts, right, to impact. And I think that's where uh, we want to go. So it's, it's the move away from whether, you know, you're a bad person and whether you intended to do such and such or not and all of that. It's not something about your moral character but it's uh, we're having this discussion because you know there's an impact you know that's being felt that there's a disparity that's being created that there's an inequality uh, that is uh, being created in this environment a lot of times in the workplace um, people try to have bring in a consultant to have a training on bias and so forth and you know that's that's one step you know that's uh, you know one way to think about starting a conversation on bias but it's not the the only step. And I think uh, oftentimes people don't know what else to do after that. And so it ends up being the only step, but that is not sufficient in terms of actually addressing bias in the workplace. And in some ways I can set you back because there's also research showing that when you, you know, you have this good thing that you've done, you know, in the workplace, it's called moral credentialing where you feel like, okay, I can check that box. I've done that good thing. It's oftentimes can lead you uh, to be less likely, to do other things that are needed, that are more challenging, that are more difficult to do uh, later on. So you don't want the bias training actually to <laughs> end up fostering more bias because sure. you haven't taken these other steps that you need to take uh, to re- really uh, move the needle. And again, there are lots of other steps that you can take. We talked about looking at your policies, looking at your practices. We talked about increasing accountability through starting to track some of these issues. Issues, through metrics. Also, what are ways in which um, you need to address your culture? So there's a lot of research looking at the power of culture to shape our ideas and to either, you know, encourage bias or uh, mitigate it. And so looking um, at your culture uh, is another, what, what are the cultural norms, right? You know, in, in the workplace, disparity itself in the workplace can um, actually encourage bias, because it gives us ideas about, you know, who, who belongs, where, right? Um, so if you see racial disparities and gender disparities in the C-suite, say, in, in your workplace, then, you know, that gives you an idea about who deserves to be on top, right? So again, it's it's leading us sometimes to question or, or to think about, you know, the people <laughs> rather than the system uh, when we're like looking at uh, disparities. And that can deepen the disparity, but it can also encourage bias. So those are some of the things we might want to think about.
2: Great. Well, Jennifer, you've given us a lot of really good things to consider and to do. And I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to share with our audience.
1: We could talk a little bit about is the role of technology, you know, in all of this. I think uh, a lot of people want to uh, sort of think about AI, you know, as the answer to much of this. Artificial intelligence. And so that's like all over the place and people are thinking about AI solutions to everything including bias. Because if you just remove the person, the idea is that the bias will be removed from the decision-making or, or whatever. So the thing that worries uh, me about all of this is that it's like less, we're less responsible because now the machine is doing it. And I feel like we should uh, really um, push against that impulse because we need to think more about these issues, not less. And it's not that i'm against uh technology we're actually using you know harnessing the power of technology what we're doing is um, analyzing body-worn camera footage having those cameras introducing those cameras actually uh, leads to a, a decrease in use of force and it also leads to a decrease in a citizen complaint i, I think there's a huge power uh there uh with technology but again it's not the only answer. It's not the only way. And sometimes that technology could be used to set us back. We have all of these things and at different levels that we can leverage to really make a difference and really move the needle on this. So
2: it sounds like what we really need is to be aware that we're we're all susceptible to bias. And there are a number of different things we can do to counter that, but it's not a one and done kind of solution. We need to be really intentional over time and and look at a lot of different ways that we can even out the disparities. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, that's fair to say.
2: Yes. Great. Well, Jennifer, this has just been a f- fabulous conversation. Uh, it was delightful to talk to you. Learned a lot by reading your book and even more from the conversation. And uh, we're just really thankful for you sharing your time with us
1: today. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Thanks Lori, And thanks to those who are listening. A reminder that Jennifer Eberhardt's book is Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think and Do. If you enjoyed this episode of Executive Edge, I invite you to listen to the August 19th edition of Court Web, where Professor Eberhardt, along with Judge Bernice Donald, retired judge Jeremy Fogel and host Brenda Baldwin-White discuss how bias can impact our daily lives. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Executive Edge, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap on Executive Edge Podcast. Did you know that Executive Edge can be delivered directly to your computer or mobile device? Simply go to your podcast app, search for Executive Edge and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Executive Edge is produced by Shelley Easter, directed by Craig Bowden, edited by Ursula Maurer, And our program coordinator is Anna Glashkova. Special thanks to Michael Siegel and Chris Murray. I'm Jim Chance. Thanks for listening. Until next time.